0: This evening's talk (coughs) is about karma, and the Pali word that is what I usually use is kama. And beginning uh, with some words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs to their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. So I'd like to begin by saying something that I found to be uh, very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years, as I began to connect more and more deeply uh, with the understanding, the teaching of kama. And this is the teaching, the, the teaching about Kama. Um, and it brings, uh, it offers and brings uh, to an ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear or belief in any higher authority, but rather founded on a clear, understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to all things, all phenomena, and particularly as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on kama is really not so much something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we come to see and know it in operation. As a Western woman, and I think I can safely say this for most all of us who have primarily been brought up and conditioned in Western-oriented countries, that it's really, for me, been kind of a relief to discover that, as it turns out, kama is really not some unreachable or some strange concept. The teaching, relevancy, and understanding of kama, which is one of Buddhism's central themes, is really, it's really quite accessible. And actually, even really quite ordinary, and maybe even so ordinary that it somehow may elude our complicated minds. So what is kama? Etymologically, or the root of the word kama, is action or deed. In the context of the Dhamma, It's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. Another way of looking at and understanding this is action based on motivation. In English, the word motivation uh, has a somewhat deeper and somewhat subtler meaning than intention. The motivation in the mind Behind or underneath, or maybe preceding the intention. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. In the Buddhist teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for comma. So, comma is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus, which leads to actions. Both creative and destructive actions. This is the essence of kama. And words from the Buddha. Monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention, leads to choose to act or to speak in a wholesome way. And unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or wholesome motivation is wholesome comma. And unwholesome intention is unwholesome comma. Kama. kama is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. So just like a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law of karma is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct, immediate experience, begin to understand the law of kama. How these consequences are created, combined, and intensified throughout our life is clarified. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, said, it's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've discovered along Uh, the way way of my own deep practice to be really quite amazing and illuminating, is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma, intention has a much subtler meaning than it commonly has in the way it's used and understood in everyday English. We usually think of intention as the link between internal thought and its resultant external actions. Such as, like, I did that intentionally. Or we might ask ourselves or another person, is that really what you meant to say? The Buddhist teaching tells us that all actions, speech, speech, And all thoughts, no matter how fleeting, as well as our responses of the mind, the heart, to the various experiences and sensations received through each of the sense doors, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind, subtly or sometimes not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic fruits of these choices. So in other words, intention is the factor which leads the mind to turn towards or to turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, the heart, to proceed or to not proceed in a particular direction. From this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs how the mind, how the heart responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens. And we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is the force that organizes the movements of the mind, which means the, it means that intention is a primary aspect of what determines the states that are experienced by the heart, by the mind. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that the motivation or the intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that is determinant of our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation, the intention that leads to action is what determines the results of our actions. Basically, this is the teaching of cause and effect cause and result, as I've already mentioned. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle, is an energy that's powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. It's possible to actually experience this process occurring when mindfulness is accompanied by a clear, deep, and strong momentary concentration. And even on a very subtle level, when clear, strong mindfulness is accompanied by a well-developed access concentration. So, in light of this, consider that even just one tiny thought that might not even be a particularly important thought isn't without consequence, some consequence. It will will result in at least a tiny speck of comma that's added to the stream of conditions which shape one's mental activity. If this speck is practiced repeatedly over and over and over again in the mind or expressed repeatedly through external expression and speech or actions, the result, the karmic result, is strengthened in the form of one's character traits. And even through our bodily makeup, such as maybe various physical expressions and even possibly physical features. As well as in the form of our verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. And even the responses and reactions that come to us, that we, in a sense, draw to us from external sources, can sometimes show up in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened when we're unaware, when we're not mindful, and we are repeatedly acting out or practicing these specks of mental kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Or we could say, everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive comma, a painful or destructive intention, doesn't really have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. I remember once a number of years ago, when I was sitting a retreat, I got a note uh, that wasn't particularly pleasing to me. And I proceeded to angrily tear up that piece of paper that the note was written on, even though that piece of paper had absolutely no importance in and of itself. And it certainly, though, did have an effect on the quality of my mind, the quality of my heart, in those moments and ongoing for a while. In contrast to this, more recently, I was cleaning off my desk here at the forest refuge in the cottage that I'm staying in. And I just simply, neutrally, threw away a scrap of paper. With that action producing a very different effect on the quality of the mind, the quality of the heart. If we repeatedly act out of Angry intention. The effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer. And it may develop to a more and more significant level. In the chain or the wheel of dependent origination, or what's sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising which is the process of how the experiences of dukkha or ease that we have through the six sense doors, how they come to be, how they manifest, and how they cease to be. In this wheel of dependent interdependent arising, kama is specifically explained in terms of intention, and it's called the agent with which fashion, fashions the mind. In light of this discussion, I'd like to read some words from the Thai Buddhist scholar, Venerable Payuto. He says, Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck which is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, specks of dust which alight on a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight on a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. An even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There is no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it is necessary to use the mind on a refined level, previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. There's a wonderful section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya The Connected Discourses in the Woods, a few of which I offered uh, in an earlier Dhamma Talk during this month of February here. Um, And they they come from uh, discussions between various woodland dwelling devas and uh, these devas approaching uh, and speaking to certain monks who are practicing in these same woodland thickets. So I'd like to share just a a part, a small part, of one of these same short dialogues uh, as an illustration regarding what we're exploring this evening. And this is the verse, some of you have heard uh, the longer section of it. This is the verse about a bhikkhu, about a monk who's returning from his uh, daily alms rounds and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day. And he would go down to a nearby pond after he finished eating his meal and sniff a lotus. When the deva who lived in this same woodland thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. And she goes on thinking, let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in the monk to practice, the deva addressed the monk as follows. This is the deva speaking. When you sniff, she's speaking to the monk, when you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say, I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him. But it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere's hair tip of evil appears as big as a cloud." the understanding that various experiences of stress of suffering and the experiences of ease are the results of our karma our karma the results of our actions our actions of thought speech and deed right here right now in this very lifetime on this very day and on back and back, and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born. We spring out of the womb of kama, we could say. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are the undeniable heirs of our kama. So, for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us and in some way inevitably returns to us as what could be called our due inheritance. So, what does this mean? We could say with everything that happens and the resultant ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, that this ease or dis-ease is the outcome, meaning the response or the reaction of our own mind's relationship to all of the internal and external happenings that we experience. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this lifetime, in any given moment, is due to our own mind. Meaning our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions. Meaning our wholesome responses or unwholesome responses to internal and external phenomena. Our suffering, our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind. Our ease and happiness, or dis-ease and suffering, is due to the motivations, intentions, and the subsequent actions, the deeds of our mind, body, and speech. Not due to our wishes, not due to our hopes and our dreams for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer, antagonistic, or seemingly mysterious, strange, or foreign world. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from your own actions. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur, how things unfold, and to see their nature. And as this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our own body-mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind more and more often lead to wholesome, responsive, creative choices rather than to unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. In its powerful potential to bring good or bad results, Kama can be compared to food. Some foods are good, bringing and promoting health when we eat them at the right time and in the right amount. And some foods are harmful and bring disease or may even be poisonous for us, may even be deadly. So we pay attention. We pay attention to the thoughts and the intention behind, underneath, the potential action. And feed ourselves and thus others healthy food and consequently create healthy kama. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding. Knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that in knowing this, we can and do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more we know our motivations, our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of Kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, meaning ignoring or misunderstanding the way of things, we're living in conflict and disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound to experience some fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, and confusion as this understanding begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind, What is there to fear? The heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. We really, truly begin to know that we're not trapped. We're not trapped running around and around and around on the karmic wheel. It's as though we're all artists. But instead of canvas and paint or clay, marble or music or pencil, pen and paper as our creative medium, it's our very mind, body and heart and the immediacy of our life experience that are the materials of our creative expression. So again, one of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that in knowing this, we can and we do, in fact, actively create and fashion our life. And that the more clearly we know our motivations, our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental karma to be the most important and far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental karma being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding. With our views often showing up as our beliefs and our preferences, which are what then direct our motivations, intentions, and the resultant thoughts, which then potentially flow out into words and actions. So just simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, We cling to the understanding of ourself, other beings, things, even situations, experiences and places as being independent, separate and static, meaning unchanging. We're motivated by misunderstanding and ignorance, meaning ignoring the truth of things. We're motivated by what's called wrong view in the Buddhist teachings. And with this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations are coming from a self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place. And will inevitably bring suffering to ourself and to others. If we have the understanding, if one is experientially through practice growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experiences, and places are totally interdependent and arise only because of various causes and conditions coming together. And that in fact the causes and conditions themselves are always in flux, that nothing No thing abides independently or separately or is static. Our intentions, our motivations come out of understanding the truth of the way of things. Our intentions, our motivations come out of what is called right view. And so our thoughts and the subsequent words flow of words or flow of actions, all come come from a place of harmony and a lightness of being and are more and more often appropriately responsive to any given situation and consequently are beneficial in both overt and subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. some words from the Buddha about this. Monks, yogis, when there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, All are productive of that, excuse me, all are productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding no benefit but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. It is like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste. A foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. And he goes on. Monks, yogis, when there is right view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, All are yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, and conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It's like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, or a fruit seed planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account is that? On account of that good seed. An important aspect of right view in relationship to what we call self, call me, at least in part and very often, is a reference to this body as any explored somewhat in her last Dhamma talk. This body is actually not a solid something, but rather a process made up of many elements, with all and each of them being in continual flux. So, just briefly now, what I'm referring to are the experiential characteristics of the four great elements that we come to know directly through our practice. And I'd like to share the experiential aspects of each of the elements with you briefly this evening. The first is the earth element. That's a concept. Experientially, we experience the earth element as hardness, roughness heaviness softness smoothness lightness the second great element is the water element this is what our body this is an asp- these are all aspects of our body the water element again that's a concept experiential we experientially we can come to know the water element as the experience of flowing the experience of cohesion the third great element is the fire element And we come to know this experientially as heat or warmth and coldness or coolness. The fourth great element is the wind or the air element. And this we can come to know experientially as pushing and supporting. There's much more that can be said about this, but that's all for this evening regarding this. This experiential, non-ordinary understanding of the body can be an important and illuminating step on the path of right view in relationship to directly and experientially understanding not-self, impersonality. It's in this light, in fact, that the Buddha spoke about actions without an actor doings without a doer. Within what is essentially an impersonal karmic process, our actions are like seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished. Some seeds may be dormant for many years, maybe many lifetimes, until the exact combination of causes and conditions arise to germinate them. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. So an obvious and clear metaphor that's often used in the Buddhist teachings is that apple seeds bring apple trees and apples into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. If we plant poppy seeds, no matter how much we might hope, lettuce won't grow from poppy seeds. A loving act at some point ends up bearing loving fruit. And an angry or angry or hateful acts produce hateful fruit. So again, the words uh, from the Buddha that we began this talk with, all beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. An important point here is that not-self, impersonality, behind our actions, doesn't discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. We need to couple our understanding of selflessness, our understanding of not-self, with a very mindful and very respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their karmic fruit, karmic fruit. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intention, based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions of mind, speech, and body. If we're unaware, of the motivations in our mind, when unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise, we may unmindfully act on them and consequently create the conditions for immediate or future suffering. And some words from Padmasambhava, said to have been the person that brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibet and Bhutan. He said, Though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of kama should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or act, and also the awareness of The karmic fruit of our words and actions, once they've been said and performed, has the effect of really, truly broadening our field of choice as we work, as we practice to purify and transform our heart and mind and our actions. So that we're not just running on automatic, not running on our habitual ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions we see for instance that extending generosity loving kindness compassion towards others it comes back to us. And we see and feel the effects of approaching the world with aggression. Anger, judgment, greed, or grasping. An important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's not important, not so important, where your present suffering came from. But what is really important is where you take it from here. Meaning, What's most important is how you approach the situation in or how you approach the situation of this moment. So, for instance, the appropriate, healthy, and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it may be, is compassion. As we traverse this path through our practice, we clearly begin to see and to know that there's a refuge, a refuge where the suffering of confusion, fear, anger, resistance, discontent can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, thoughts, words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence, a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past, and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, maybe even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the mind, training of the heart that we're all involved with, engaged in, is a very good deed, the best really, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions, always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. Some of us uh, have been conditioned with such uh, advice as well, too bad, it's too late. I certainly heard that in my life. Or we might begin to be thinking, well, I'm too old. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. This, neither of these, none of this is true. Absolutely not true. It's never too late. And so we practice this, and it becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge. And at some point, we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddhist disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring? other than an increase of the good. As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, in our heart, the heart, the mind becomes more tranquil and serene. And through our practice, we gain the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties that come up in our practice and that come up in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary even if sometimes the immediate results of our deeds seem to bring us maybe some sorrow or, or some discomfort or pain. Maybe through the way that others treat us or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life or maybe from some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds, may not be at all what we expected. Not what we had in mind. Results that maybe seem contrary to what we might think of as our intention, our motivation. Many years ago, I had a therapist who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately, say for me at appropriate times, This isn't what I had in mind, which would always stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, to take a close look at my motivations, my expectations, and most importantly in those moments to simply be with what was occurring with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at the time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend, maybe sometimes a kind of stern and in a certain way a demanding teacher, yet potentially a really truthful and well-intentioned friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born, repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. I'd like to uh, read a section from a book uh, by uh, a man named Jacques Luciron. The book is called And There Was Light. Jacques was a man who was involved in the French underground movement during the Second World War. And this is a section of his autobiography, and it very beautifully illuminates our discussion about Kama. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind, and being blind was not at all as I imagined it, nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it. They told me that to be blind meant not to see. Yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation. For at that time, I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident. And there was anguish, a lack, something like a void, which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. And it was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely. Not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within instead of clinging to the movement of sight towards the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief, and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so But for many years, I think I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had a value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing was that this was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny that they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought me closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing, or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for at every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly less brightly or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself, that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch. Then, without exception, I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was, but if I got angrier, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put hand or foot. Everything hurt me. The mechanism worked so well that I became cautious when I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be the first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I only had to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy, (sighs) We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. She or he has to learn it, for every time he forgets that he is not alone in the world, she strikes against an object, hurts herself, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time she remembers He is rewarded, for everything comes her way. And closing the talk this evening with some words from the Buddha. One should reflect reflect repeatedly upon one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. It is by mental defilement beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And the Buddha goes on to say, all conditions have mind as forerunner mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. let's sit quietly for just a moment or two Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we'll close our evening together